A few days ago I was in Edinburgh and I was kind of surprised when walking down one of the main streets and this uh, chap walking towards me, a middle-aged guy with a little daughter, and uh, as he walks past me, what I hear him say to his daughter is, what a weirdo. Yeah, I may have been mistaken, but that's that's what I heard him say to his daughter. What a weirdo. And what was interesting about that was it's been a very long time since I've heard anybody say anything uh, rude or insulting uh, when being out in public. It's, uh, many years ago, um, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, people did say things that were a little challenging from time to time, but it's been a very long time now since I've heard anything like that. And so I got to thinking, well, that's a, that's a really nice thing that, that these days in Britain you can be walking around the cities and, and for the most part people are, are very respectful, very accepting and being a, a renunciate monk in 21st century uh, Britain is a accepted thing. And there's... Um, uh, not so long ago, I believe there was a television program called The Monastery uh, where uh, a bunch of fellows went off to stay in this Christian monastery and their experience was recorded and apparently the program was very popular. And uh, more recently, the monastery in Chithurst, West Sussex, Sergeant Suchito featured, I think it was in the Financial Times, um, a bunch of photographs and articles about living the renunciate life and and in fact, uh, we were even approached by some television channel. They wanted to do a follow-up uh, program uh, about this uh, the monastery. We, we declined the invitation. But uh, what's heartening about this, as far as I'm concerned, is that it's okay in our society these days to be considering renunciation. For a long time, this renunciation was like a dirty word. You just you didn't think about it, and all monks... Uh, were weirdos. It wasn't just one fellow in Edinburgh calling us a weirdo. That was the kind of the, the norm. So that's changed, and and uh, I, I think that's a fine thing. And I think it's a, of course, a, a very fine thing when situations like here tomorrow we have our Anagarika Marcus is going to make the very public statement of embracing the renunciate life, putting on the the robe of the renunciate and becoming a Samanera and uh, preparation eventually for becoming a bhikkhu, we hope. And it's a, an inspiring sign, inspiring for me personally. I'm very happy to see Marcus doing this. He's been around here long enough now, and I'm pleased that his commitment is such that he wants to, to make this statement. But also a fine thing for our society. I remember it was one of the, the signs that inspired the Buddha as a disillusioned young man uh, wandering around in India with the great question, what's this all about? What's the meaning of life? 
He had been brought up as a prince and rich and supposed to be happy, had everything, did great at everything. But then when he turned 29 and came across some of the raw realities of life, old age, sickness and death, disillusionment set in. And seeing a renunciate, a truth seeker, wandering around was one of the signs that quickened this very important question in his heart. Now, what's it all about? Is there a solution? Can I find an answer to this deep question of what's really important in life? Is there freedom from suffering? It's uh, as great as life can be. And it can be great. We can have a wonderful time. Great company and good, pleasurable experiences. And yet the bad news is you get old, <laughs> which is not fun. You get sick, which is not fun. And then you die, which is really bad news uh, for most people. And is there a solution to this? This is the, the big question that all of us, to some degree, have to face. And the Buddha wholeheartedly, whole bodily embraced this question and went out and also um, became a truth seeker, living the renunciate life. And so having such a sign in society, characters wandering around, uh, not pretending, uh, actually wearing this uh, this this weird outfit and shaven head, sandals, and making a very public statement that actually uh, what's most important to us is that we find a solution to these really important questions. So that Marcus wants to do this tomorrow is, um, I think, is a very fine thing. I'm very happy to support him in this. But there's no question about it. It's... Um, it runs against the grain for most people. Most people think it's thoroughly illogical. What's a man of 40 doing, uh, taking on this lifestyle, wearing the, putting on the saffron robe, shaving his head and, and cutting up his credit card? It's probably an equivalent these days of, of putting on the saffron robe and in India 2,500 years ago, shaving your head, putting on the saffron robe, and the equivalent these days is a ritualistic cutting up of your credit card. We could introduce that to the ceremony tomorrow, Ajahn Punya. Marcus could bring his credit card and we could... <laughs> a pair of scissors. A very powerful statement. And uh, yeah, what's this guy doing? The guy's got a, lost the plot. <laughs> Losing all his security. Well, it's not because he doesn't have any intelligence or any ability. He, he's very intelligent, has considerable ability and considerable success and conventional realm, but it doesn't answer the deep questions. And so there arises an intuition that there's another way of going about this. The logical, from one perspective, from one perspective, one conditioned way of thinking, the logical way to get happy is to conceive of myself as somebody happy and aim for it and to try and become happy. Here's me, miserable, inadequate, unsatisfied fellow. So there's me, the idea of me, and I've got to become happy so I can try and become happy. And when a little moment of happiness arises, I cling to it and try and make myself more happy and more happy. But actually, it doesn't seem to work. And so for some people, the great doubt arises, as it did with the Buddha. Maybe having a palace, a great job, and all these riches is not the solution. And maybe there's another way of approaching it, a radically different way of approaching it. And yes, the renunciate, the gesture of renunciation is a radically different 
way of approaching the pursuit of happiness. And it is born out of a, an intuition that this, perhaps this mechanical way of thinking, you know, I do this and do this and then I get that. You know, the kind of a mechanical attitude to approaching life uh, doesn't work. And so we perhaps come across a more embodied, intuitive approach, which is in accord with the Buddha's teaching, which is instead of pursuing happiness, we stop and look at our unhappiness. Or as Carl Gustav Jung said, something like, if you're seeking enlightenment, then stop chasing the light, but look into the darkness. So this is not a mechanical, linear, logical approach. It's quite different from that. But it's not, uh, it's not unnatural. Some people will think it's very unnatural, you know, this life of renunciation. What a strange thing to be doing. But I remember reading or hearing about how a flock of geese orient themselves when they fly in a certain direction. When geese, a flock of geese, fly in a certain direction, they never look in the direction they're going. They look everywhere except the direction they're going. But by looking everywhere, they get their bearings right. It's not necessarily what one would think logically, but that actually is what happens. And, and so actually what happens when we want to be free from suffering, we need to let go of our pursuit of happiness. Now that sounds frightening, but if you exercise intelligence, exercise discernment, you say, well, following my pursuit of happiness hasn't given me the satisfaction I'm looking for. So let's reverse our attention and look at the very wanting to be happy until we get to see, well, actually this wanting to be happy is unhappiness itself. Wanting to be happy is an irritation. If we're actually happy, if we're really contented, if we're fully contented, imagine, you're fully contented, and then wanting to be happy arises, well, that's an expression of unhappiness, right? That's an irritation. But because we're not quick enough, we're not smart enough, we don't see it, we grasp it, we follow it, and we try and become happy, which is actually very unintelligent, uh, very foolish. So we need to slow down. And this, again, also is one aspect of renunciation. And this is not, you know, I should say for those of you that are not interested in living the life of renunciation, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, renunciation is not just something for monks and nuns to do, but it's something that, that uh, is encouraged for all people to, the degree that they're interested in, the degree that they wish, to consider this virtue, this, this Dhamma principle of how to cultivate this muscle of restraint, of renunciation. Because that's what it is. It's the ability to say no to our habits of clinging, yeah. habits of grasping. Yeah. What are we doing as a renunciate that? You know, like, okay, we don't, as a monk, you don't eat after 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock in British summertime. So we make this gesture of renunciation. Not like there's anything wrong with eating in the evening, a perfectly normal thing to do. However, if you're living this life and you're living off offerings from other people, well, there's no need to be eating three meals a day. Two is plenty or even one probably. Although when the weather's this cold too, it's quite nice. Thank you very much. So we say, okay, midday, we don't eat after that. 
got the habit, the impulse to eat for entertainment or distraction or whatever in the evening comes up, the training of renunciation means that we learn to say no to that. Not as a moral judgment, not saying, oh, I shouldn't want to eat in the evening, that's really gross. <laughs> not, there's nothing gross about eating in the evening. Yeah, or, or playing the violin, you like playing the violin. Or, you know. As a renunciate, you give up playing musical instruments. Not because it's immoral to play the violin or play the guitar in the morning or the evening, but because we want to pull back from our habits of distraction so that we can say yes to life. We're learning to say no to our habits of distraction so that we can be fully able to say yes. Why is it that we, why is it that we can't just say yes to life as it comes to us? Yes, I accorded this. Yes, I accorded this. Yes, I accommodate life moment by moment by moment. Why can't we do that? We get fooled all the time. Desire arises. If desire is appropriate, well, fine, we accord with it, we go, we follow it, and then we move on. But if desire is inappropriate, we we see it as inappropriate, and can we accord with it and let it go? Well, not always. End up buying stuff we shouldn't buy or eating stuff we shouldn't eat, whatever. Because we don't know how to say no to a habit of desire. Or ill will. If ill will arises, we've learnt from the past that ill will is a really unwholesome, unskillful thing. If you follow it, it just makes everything worse. But if we really know how to say no to our impulses to cling, then when ill will arises, we say no to that tendency. Say, I want to follow this, I want to thump this guy, I want to say something nasty. Say no, no, no. And then ill will pass away. No problem. But can we do that? <laughs> well, maybe sometimes, but sometimes we can't. And then that, <laughs> we create problems. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. We can't say no to our habits of grasping, of clinging. And this is a problem. And so one, one of the really important aspects of the commitment to training and renunciation cultivating the virtue or in Pali Nekama Parami this cultivating this parami this virtue, this force of light is this learning the ability to say no to our habits of heedlessness so that we can say yes to life so that we're not fooled by life one of my all time favourite songs that I often remember from way back in the I think the late 60s uh, from uh, The Who was we won't get fooled again. That, uh, that wonderful refrain. I'm not sure about all the lyrics of that song, what they all mean, and probably not that wholesome, but certainly that frame, refrain of uh, won't get fooled again. And yet uh, the trouble is, although we, we really don't want to get fooled again, we do. We get fooled again over and over again. And Well, praying about it, you know, it might have do some good, but but maybe we need to do something more than that. Uh, from the Buddhist perspective, we need to do a lot more than that. Is we need to understand. When there's clear seeing or right understanding of the nature of loving and hating, of desire and ill will, when there's really clear seeing, then the heart, the consciousness, doesn't contract, doesn't constrict, doesn't create obstructions and doesn't spoil life. Renunciation yeah. is it's like a training program for educating the heart so there's a possibility so that we can stop spoiling the beautiful things in life. 
love is a beautiful thing when it happens, and yet we spoil it. Surely love is the, one of the most beautiful things that can happen, and yet we spoil it. What happens when, when people fall in love, and we all fall in love, we're all on the receiving end of, of love at some stage in our life, and hopefully the giving side of love when the heart is expanded and and bright and, and receiving and, and accommodating the just-so nature of experience. And yet, we somehow spoil it. And then, so we have this expression, for instance, like, we fall in love, people fall in love. And there is usually a falling. The intensity of the sensations that arise, the beauty that arises with loving, if there's clinging, then there's a constriction on the heart, a contraction takes place, and and then all the energy goes up into our heart and into our head, and then we start with these crazy thoughts like, I can't live without you. I mean, what a ridiculous notion is that? I mean, I lived without you so far, <laughs> and suddenly I think I can't live without you. And, and love drives people crazy. And there's something that's potentially very beautiful it becomes not beautiful. And we become dependent on each other and have all sorts of strange ideas about each other and all because of this inability to remain as an expanded, open, loving state of, of heart and mind. So training and renunciation um, addresses this. Loving, hating, when ill will arises, the intensity of ill will. As I was saying before, can we, can we remain in a state of open-heartedness, tolerating the painful intensity of rage and not move on it? When rage arises, indignation arises, can we accommodate it and still speak and act and think with sanity? Or does that intense energy go up into our hearts and flame our hearts and then come out through our speech and go up to our heads and drive us a bit insane? So I was uh, talking with uh, somebody I've known for some years recently, a young man who's very committed to his uh, his Buddhist practice, his meditation, and and about a year ago, he, uh, he fell in love, and a uh, wonderful thing for him, a wonderful experience, and very beautiful relationship. And, and then just recently, he was explaining to me how this uh, beautiful, wonderful thing had come to an end, and they, their relationship had, um, yeah, come to an end. They separated. But what, for me, what was really uh, wonderful listening to this fellow talk about his experience was he said, he said, I feel really bad, really, really bad. But what's happened to me in the last year means that I can tolerate this. So there's really bad feeling of something beautiful coming to an end. I'm not depressed about it. I'm hurt, but I'm not depressed. A year ago, he was saying, he said, a year ago I would have been quoting some sutta or other to explain it all away, be referring to the Buddhist scriptures, and I'd be quoting some theory about life and how sukha is dukkha and it's true sukha is dukkha but now he has an interest 
now he's got an interest in the experience of dukkha, not just defaulting to uh, philosophizing about it. So it's uh, not it's it's certainly having the theory of of practice in place is very important, but theory in itself is not enough. Um, there's that um, that lovely movie called Shadowlands about C.S. Lewis, and um, who was a pretty brainy fellow, and had a great many very clever things to say about suffering, until he fell in love. <laughs> And then he had some wise things to say about suffering. Because what? Because he knew what it meant to have an open heart. He knew the experience of an embodied, loving human being who could tolerate suffering. He still suffered, but he was interested in working with the pain of disappointment rather than just going up his head and philosophizing about it. It's a wonderful movie worth watching, at least as I remember it. We don't get interested in suffering because we're sick. <laughs> it might look like that to people who are committed to sensuality, but actually getting interested in suffering is what happens when we start to get sane. Another chap I know who, who I correspond with from time to time um, recently went to visit Thailand and came back with a... a, 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 a a really inspired, new, refreshed commitment to his spiritual life. And one of the things that he was telling me he's embraced is the cultivation of dana or generosity. And presumably this is partly his experience of Thailand where the people there are phenomenally generous. And this for me also was one of the things when I first went to Thailand about 35 years ago, really inspired me, this spontaneous um, generosity you see witness participate in all over the place very delightful to, to see and be part of and so this fellow came back from his visit to Thailand and now he says he said one of the first things I think about when I wake up in the morning is what conscious act of generosity can I do today because he's experienced for himself the benefit of cultivating this virtue we all get fooled again over and over again by the shadows cast by ignorance, the shadows of greed, the shadows of aversion, the shadows of delusion. These shadows of ignorance overshadow the heart and the radiance, the beauty, the potential of the heart is obscured. And how does this happen? Because we don't, have the, we don't have the strength, we don't have enough of a storehouse of radiance so that these forces of, of ignorance don't overwhelm us. And so this guy has seen this enough, so he's, he's really embracing this aspect of the training of, of dhanabharami, of generosity. And, and he was saying how now he, uh, he goes to work in the morning taking enough lunch for two so he can give half away to somebody. This is like a, a conscious gesture. I want to cultivate generosity. Or now in, uh, in Marcus's case, uh, this interest in cultivating I don't know if the first thing he wakes up in the morning is how can I cultivate generosity or how can I help Ajahnmanendra. I don't know what the first thoughts he has in his mind are, but um, maybe something like that. Maybe he's also uh, having thoughts about, well, how can I strengthen this muscle of renunciation? How can I learn to say no to these heedless 
impulses of distraction that I've cultivated for 40 years. Not, again, not because he's too afraid of life, but because he's interested in the reality of suffering. What is it? What is this, this commitment to suffering that we have, that we keep perpetuating, getting so interested in this as to pull back from all of our habits, little by little, not in one grand gesture, hopefully, because you can't do that, but little by little. That's why committing to do it, as we do, as a lifestyle is a wise thing, because it does. It takes years to build up these abilities, but it's all based on interest. What is it that I do that keeps feeding this habit of compounding suffering? What is it that I've been doing all these years and I keep doing over and over again? When that question arises, that's a precious thing, that's a wonderful thing. And if we want to increase the radiance, the light in our hearts, in our own hearts and in the world, then this is the kind of question we want to listen for within ourselves. And so uh, as Marcus goes forth tomorrow in becoming a Samanera, this is my understanding of what he's doing. He's doing it so as to increase uh, the radiance in his own heart and the radiance in the world, and we certainly wish him well in it. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Ang mayang damawa na tatasang lukarang ramasay.